Thank you for joining us for another podcast from the Commonwealth Club. How appropriate. Good evening and, and welcome to today's meeting of the Commonwealth Club. You can find the Commonwealth Club on the internet at commonwealthclub.org. You can see the club's videos on YouTube and catch up with the club on Facebook and Twitter. I am retired Superior Court Judge Ladaris Cordell, your moderator for today's program. I'm now pleased to introduce today's distinguished guest, Daphne Muse, a writer, social commentator, and cultural broker. She has spent over 35 years in the East Bay as an English professor at UC Berkeley and Mills College. She was a member of the legal defense team handling the Angela Davis trial, a national public radio social commentator, and a writer for Major League Baseball's education program. She is also an author of children's books, a board member of an arts group that promotes education in South Africa, and director of the Women's Leadership Institute at Mills College. Daphne's collection of more than 3,700 handwritten and typed letters dating back to 1958 reflects the voices of activists, writers, artists, actors, world leaders, and media innovators. These are people who shaped movements, who created new artistic visions, and drove the intellectual and cultural discourse for civil rights and human rights for the 20th and the early years of the 21st centuries. Today, Daphne will discuss and read from some of the letters in her collection, reflecting the voices of key figures in the civil rights, pan-African, and black power movements. We're going to have a unique chance to view history through the words of those who lived it. So Daphne will now begin by making some brief opening comments. Please welcome Daphne Muse. I want to thank George Dobbins for following through on George Cordell's suggestion for her to interview me. The focus group I assembled at the suggestion of filmmaker Cheryl Fabio in June of 2018 helped me move forward in my thinking about how this collection of now more than 4,000 pieces of correspondence and historical receipts can serve to inform future curriculum, projects, support scholars, and activists in their research and provide reflection for those who created and shared in the times documented herein. I especially want to thank archival goddess and consultant Lisbeth Telson and educator activist Eileen Abrams for devoting their time to working with me on reorganizing and documenting the collection. I so appreciate those gathered this evening for releasing yourselves from the demands of the day to come and engage with me in the reading of these testimonies to the movements, struggles, rites of passage, friendships, and familial exchanges that reflect upon a life lived rooted in the liberation of oppressed people around the world. 
1971, while traveling to Tanzania, I stopped in London to pick up Walter Rodney's manuscript on how Europe underdeveloped Africa. It was first published by Bogle Overture Publications, run by Jessica Huntley and Eric Huntley. In London, a young Guyanese active in the Pan-African movement took me to the British Museum where he worked cataloging and labeling artifacts. It was my first time ever in a museum. We walked through the endless miles of storage areas where African art and artifacts were stored in drawers, display cases, and overstuffed file cabinets. I remember asking him if the British left any of the sacred vessels, masks, and furniture on the continent. (laughs) I was simply appalled at the level of looting. After leaving London, I went on to Dar es Salaam and continued work with my drum and spear friends and professors, including Jennifer Lawson, Cortland Cox, and Charlie Cobb. Dar, as we referred to it, was teeming with folks who played key roles in the Black Power, Pan-African, and Black Panther movements. Upon delivering the manuscript, which I read on the plane, Walter asked me to provide comments. I got to work with him during my almost two-month stay in Tanzania, and it was one of the most memorable experiences ever. He also designated me as his bid whisk partner. And we ran legendary Bostons across the diaspora. In 1975, I finally visited my first American museum, even though I had grown up in a city which had some of the most distinguished repositories of culture in the world. At the Smithsonian National Museum of History, the white people had George Washington's teeth, which are reported to have been harvested from mouths of enslaved Africans. For me, his dentures were a turning point in how value is placed on history and who places it. In that moment, I made a strategic decision to engage in and access every piece of black life and culture I could. To that end, I've collected upwards of 22,000 books, 17 portfolios, and seven flat files of ephemera. Some of my collections are housed at Mills, College, Emory University, and UC Berkeley's Bancroft Library. These letters are not simple footnotes, but rich with the voices that reflect the visions of those committed to freedom and human dignity, most especially, though not exclusively, throughout the African diaspora, from D.C. to Dar es Salaam and Oakland to Accra. Some reflect the unwavering love we have for our people and each other. There are love letters, family letters, including those written during the time my brother Vincent served as a page at the Supreme Court. Mm, There's some juicy stuff up in there. And correspondence calling into question my social and political beliefs and the standards which I lived, by which I live them. While 90% of the collection re- represents visions and voices across the diaspora, there is some absolute nonsense up in there, including a series of letters to D-Duchess Deandra Dillweed of Malta, a bid playing heiress of African descent, 
who married Da Duke, the owner of Chez Pretense. They were among a series of fictitious characters Vele Clark and I created to address some of the utter absurdities of life. The person with whom I've corresponded the longest is now retired PBS senior vice president Jennifer Lawson. We bonded into a treasured sisterhood in 1969 in Marks, Mississippi, when she took me to Ruleville, Mississippi, to meet Fannie Lou Hamer, one of my forever chocolate hearts. I've worked as the backup background person who provided support to those who often were on history's center stage. While I serve that history with discretion, I also feel a responsibility to share some of those letters to flesh out so many unanswered questions and raise others. Nabra, you did not organize that Friday, October 28th, 1966 Lowndes County Mass Rally. <laughs> File that under SNCC activist Cortland Cox. Aretha Franklin offered to post bail for Angela Davis, but was unable to do so for logistical reasons. Related to being on a small island in the Caribbean at the time she made the offer. As secretary for the brilliant legal defense team, I witnessed that moment in history as the lawyers received the news of her offer. Roger McAfee, a California cooperative dairy farmer, posted the 102,000, the 102, 500,000 bail. Today is the 47th anniversary of the acquittal of Angela. After the trial, I was hired by Professor William Banks to teach expository writing in the Afro-American Studies Department. And three years after, and three years after at Berkeley, Dr. Francio Rusan Wilson, then chair of the Ethnic Studies Program at Mills, offered me a position on the faculty there. On October 29, 1977, I held an epic party to celebrate solidifying my life and that of my then three-year-old daughter, Anya Naya, in Oakland, where our home became a cultural hub and refuge for 39 years. Hundreds of activists and organizers gathered therein on the release to work on the release of the San Quentin Six, as well as women ensnared in the carceral carousel, including Joanne Little, an African-American woman put on trial for the murder of a white prison guard in North Carolina who defended herself against his attempts to rape her. She was acquitted. Six-year-old Tupac, his younger sister, and his mother, Afeni Shakur, spent four days with us in 1977. A few weeks ago, I found the, uh, the thank you note of Fanny sent after their stay in the home that would become a refuge retreat and cultural enclave in East Oakland. Prize-winning novelist and poet Alice Walker's first Bay Area book party was held there in 1979. In 1983, Martinique filmmaker Uzan Pelsi met with Alice to pitch her offer to direct The Color Purple. Though it, was not been, though it had not been made public at the time, the deal already had been sealed with Mr. Spielberg. Seeking anonymity, Sharon Robinson, daughter of barrier-breaking baseball icon, lived with us for a year as she nested and gave birth to her son, Jesse, and only one person figured out who she was. And it took him four years to say anything. Ah, uh, we kept secrets. <laughs> 
1980, Rosa Parks spent a most memorable week with us, popping her fingers to the 24-7 jazz station, sharing stories of her childhood, and sewing a button on that had popped off a dress my mother had made for Anya. My cherished husband of 22 years, activist David Landis, discussed strategies and organized logistics with members of the disability rights movement to continue the implementation of the 504, which was passed in 1973. All of these and hundreds of other pivotal points in history throughout the diaspora are documented in the letters and reams of ephemera, which now... uh, include more than 17 portfolios and seven uh, flat files. Thank you, Daphne. Come join us. I, I so appreciate all of you being here, and every one of you is special. But I do want to call out one person who is a member of the audience today, and I, it was just truly a treat to have here and I think is one of this this country's greatest writers authors it's Alice Walker thank you for being here thank you thank you Daphne um, I I've known you for quite a while and I find you and the life that you have you lead and have led to be absolutely fascinating so I want to start with you in sixth grade. This is in Washington, D.C., correct? And um, so you, now sixth grade, you're about, how old? I was 11. 11 years old. You wanted to be a cartographer. Uh, 11-year-olds don't even know what a cartographer is. So explain. So my father insisted that we play Scrabble. And he insisted that we have excellent vocabularies. Now, we spoke colored, we spoke Negro, we spoke black English, we spoke all of that. But he insisted that we have world-class vocabulary. And who is we? Me and my four brothers. Okay. And my mother. All right. And the dog. (laughs) And so cartographer was a word that I learned playing Scrabble. And I was enamored of maps. I really wanted to make maps and collect globes and just the names of countries intrigued me and how people lived in those countries and why they didn't speak the language that I spoke. You know, I learned through just looking at maps and some maps had the languages annotated on the countries. And I even went on to try to learn to speak Amharic. I didn't make it. All right. That is a tremendously difficult language. But I did speak for a long time. I spoke German and I spoke Kiswahili, but I didn't keep them up. So at some point, though, in your adolescence, you moved from maps to letters and you kept up a correspondence, like pen pal thing, right? It was with a girl in in India. Yes. Right. So tell us about that. How did that happen? Her name was Saswati Ghost. She was from... Calcutta. And it was a requirement of the Girl Scouts. I was a Girl Scout. And um, we, in order to earn an international badge, this was one of the things that you had to do. So I corresponded with her through, um, through the 90s. And then we lost track with one another. 
and I think I have found her on Facebook, but I haven't oh. heard back. But I'm, I think this is, she looks like this could be wow. the girl that matured into this wow. woman. So for the, those of you that are here in the audience, you'll notice on either side, projected on the wall, are, is an image. And this is an image of one of the letters. Is that right? Yes. Is this the letter written by her? Yes. You? Yes. Yes. Right. So this letter was written in 1958. And if you notice, she says, Dear Patricia, well, in the, when I joined the Girl Scouts in grade school, I was still going by <coughs> Patricia. And then I came to recognize as I was leaving grade school that, uh-uh, I'm not Patricia. That, no, I'm Daphne, which was my great-grandmother's name. And um, so that's how the, why the letter says that. So I'm not going to read the entire letter, but in the letter she talks about um, – how how wonderful it is to get this very long letter from me. And she talks about a particular festival in India, and she explains what the festival is about, and it's called Puja. And so I felt like she wrote in such a way that I felt like I was there in the festival with her hmm. because there were more letters that followed, and she was very good about explaining her culture and her daily life to me. And although we've never met, I feel like if she were to come and sit in a room with me, that we would pick up from where we left off. So this is how kind of the letter thing gets started in, in your life. Um, you, you go to college, you get your degree from where? Fisk. You go to Fisk, and then you begin your professional life in corporate America. And how did that work out? Uh, I was in corporate America for four months, and I went in and told my supervisor. I wasn't going to. This job does not suit my clothes. Okay. All right. And uh, she was furious because they were just beginning to train colored people for management positions. And I was clear that I was not corporate management materials. So then you set your sights on teaching. Yes. How did that work out? Um, I taught at a very challenging elementary school in Washington, D.C. called Heinz Elementary. And uh, within um, a couple of weeks of beginning to teach, I went and I visited the families of every child in my classroom. And there were some people who did not have electricity. This is Washington, Mm D.C. Hines was right behind the United States Capitol. Mm -hmm. It was in walking distance of the Capitol. And... I remember uh, Johnny Thomas's family offered the dad offered me water and he apologized profusely for not being able to offer me anything else. And I told him it was fine. And I talked to him about Johnny was a bit erratic and, you know, problematic. And he was going to give Johnny a whipping. And I said, no, 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 that's not what we want. We want Johnny to learn to read. We want him to become educated. We So. The children and the parents were ecstatic. The principal fired me. Got it. So that didn't last too long. No. Right? All right. No. That was about about seven months. All right. She said I had no business going to the homes of these children. So let's talk about a university, Drum and Spear University. What was that? I I was after after teaching. I would leave that job. I've always had fifty nine jobs, right. but I'm not Jamaican. But I've always had fifty nine <laughs> jobs. Okay. 
I would leave that job and I would go and I would work at Brentano's bookstore. And I was working at Brentano's and the assistant manager there was a black man who said, you know, there's a black bookstore that's just opened up in Northwest and I wanted to buy books for children. So I went up there and the guy, Joe Gross, said to me, he was managing the store at the time. Why are you working for them white people down there at Brentano's? You need to come up here and work for us. That's what I did. <laughs> and I ended up becoming the manager at Drum and Spear. And I always refer to it as the University of Drum and Spear because that was the place where I learned, where intellectually what I had, the foundation that I was given at Fisk grew in exponentially. And where I really began to understand what Fisk was. Because Arna Bond Tomps, the Harlem Renaissance writer, Arna Bond Tomps hired me as his research assistant. But I didn't really understand who this man was. And I was going through all these papers with people's names, Zora Neale Hurston, Gwendolyn Brooks. There was a clipping of Miss Brooks from the New York Times. And I was very perplexed as to how a black woman who didn't have on a church hat got in the <laughs> New York Times. I just, that just boggled my mind. And I didn't know what a Pulitzer was. Well, I'd learned time and time again what a Pulitzer was. <laughs> and... Uh, and I actually ended up becoming friends with Miss Brooks because she came. Well, we're, to... we're going to get to Miss Brooks a okay. little bit, all right? Okay. We'll jumping ahead a little bit. Um, I, I want to go to nineteen sixty-eight. This was this this was a crazy year. So nineteen sixty-eight, Prague Spring, the North Korea Tet Offensive, LBJ's mess in Vietnam, uh, Martin Luther King Jr.'s assassination. Um, there's this student protests all over the world regarding Vietnam, Bobby Kennedy's assassination, the Chicago Democratic Convention, and then there was you and the FBI. <laughs> so I would like you to tell us, give us the backdrop, uh, tell us what happened, and then tell us what happened when the FBI set its sights on you. So J. Edgar Hoover, and there's documentation around this um, in a book that a guy named Josh Davis, a professor at the University of Baltimore, has done. He has gotten the files on Drum and Spear. Jagger Hoover hated black bookstores. With he, I mean, hated. The FBI was four miles from Drum and Spear. So they said... The FBI building in D.C., The, the right? FBI building in D.C. was four miles from Drum and Spear. The store was set on fire three times. The store was broken in two multiple times. The agents used to come into the store and wipe books up off the shelf and say, ah, I read that. that ain't, I read that. I don't think anything of that. And they followed me home every night, and they followed me to work every morning. And some nights I had $3,000 on me from the take of the store. Mm -hmm. So I had my own personal security. <laughs> and I was walking through a tough neighborhood, but the neighborhood I lived in was an emerging middle-class neighborhood, Adams Morgan, a neighborhood that some of you may be familiar with. So, But you had an agent. There was one particular oh, agent, I, I right? Had, I had my own agent. And, and his, his name? name was Jim South. So... Mr. South knocks on my door at 2800 at Adams Morgan one morning, and the knocking is insistent. 
and I peeped through the keyhole and recognized who it is, and I refused to open the door because I didn't talk to the FBI because what they would do, they would say, you know, we were talking to Daphne, and she said, and I never wanted them to be able to say what Daphne said. So after about, mm, seems like what was an hour, Jim South slid a note under my door, and this is the note. Miss Daphne Muse, and he misspelled my name, and I was, that really set me off. <laughs> please, I have a thing about names. Please call the FB, I used to call them the FBNI, extension 73100, exchange 73100, extension 765. Thank you, Jim South. I hope Mr. South is still sitting by the phone waiting for me to call. <laughs> um, so you had your own FBI agent? And right? did you con- ever call him, by the way? No. Okay. No, Just no, no. Check. And contrary to popular belief, there were a lot of right there. Ve- there were a lot of very incompetent people in the FBI because they claimed that I was in two places at one time. And they actually, it was a party at the Tanzanian embassy. They told us who we danced with, what we wore, but we were also allegedly at another place. And I said, well, I did not know I was so powerful that I could be in two places at once. So So there was a lot of incompetence and a lot of manufacturing and fabricating of information. Um, So let's go to 1970. All right. So that's 68. You've got your own agent. He leaves you a note. Let's go to 1970. So in the 70s, this is a time when Pan-Africanism is a frequent topic of conversation in black communities. So just just briefly and just very briefly, what is just give us your definition. What is Pan-Africanism and what attracted you to the movement? Well, it it has it has more than one definition, All right. but it is the bridging of African culture and societies throughout the diaspora and people like Kwame Nkrumah and Julius Nyeri. And then there were people here in the United States, as well as in Guyana, where I spent time working with the Pan-African Secretariat. All right. So let's talk about Guyana. Um, Guyana just generally located the northern mainland of South America. Um, it was an English plantation colony uh, worked by African slaved, slaves. Uh, uh, Guyana gets its independence uh, from Britain in 1966, and Guyana is the only uh, English-speaking country in South America. Uh, so September 1970, you attended the Pan-African Conference in Guyana. Yes. Tell us about that. What happened? Well, Guyana was a very difficult place for me to be. There was something about the actual country that was very unsettling. And I never, of all the travel I've done in the world, it's the only place I said I'd never go back to. Hmm. We are on a plane that has just come from Mexico, where the World Cup was held. Pele has won. It turns out the pilot was drunk because we are about to land, and he says, oops, that's the Demerara River. And I said, okay, 
All right, but we landed. We we landed, and then people started the first night there. They were telling us stories about snoring snakes, and I said, "Oh!" <laughs> and then a man reaches his hand through the window and steals my watch. That was 1970. I've never worn a watch since 1970. Interesting. That sort of distressed my spirit, but right. the tension of the politics was fierce. So there's and, this conference, though, though, in Guyana. Yes, and there's Forbes Burnham, who's running the country and is still very much in lockstep with imperialism. And um, and then you have all these revolutionaries, AUC Guyana, right. Chetty Jagan. You have the factions of the South Asians and the blacks. And um, so this is, I'll read just a part of this letter, because some of these letters are very long. And it says, Indugal, which is a, a Swahili term of endearment. Can we get this on the screen, the, um, next, the next one up? It says, this letter is a reminder of some of the items discussed at the June meeting of the Pan-African Secretariat. Below follows a summary list of commitments made by various individuals or organizations. Daphne Muse to work on acquiring films for use in Guyana. Drum and Spear Bookstore. Sister Muse was to inform Secretariat of Distribution of Liberation, uh, which was a publication. Some decision was to be reached by the end of July. Howard Fuller, some of you remember Howard Fuller, who uh, went on to uh, run Malcolm X University to contact the Harambe singers. So there was this plan <clears throat> to do a major festival there Um and Tom Feelings and May Mallory and p- other people from Malcolm X University were there. So it was an attempt to really solidify the Pan-African movement in, in Latin America. Got it. And, um, and things got so heady that I just needed a moment to stabilize my spirit. And I had a... But you stabilized it where? Well, I had a ticket that was going to take me to Brazil. And once I landed in Guyana, I realized Latin America is huge. Yes. And I couldn't go to Venezuela because there was a border war. So a guy who worked in the embassy in Suriname said, do you want to go to Suriname? I'd never heard of Suriname. I said, sure. And I like going to places I never heard of. That was intriguing. And so just a quick interjection here on because, uh, excuse me, to prepare for my conversation with you, I had to do a little homework, too. So Suriname was a Dutch um, plantation colony dependent on African slaves, um, got its independence in 1975 and is located just east of Guyana. So. Describe just briefly, because we have a lot to cover here, what happened in Guyana, at least this interesting group that you met. So I go to Suriname. First of all, the people that were supposed to meet me didn't show up. So I end up going to a hotel and these women follow me. They will not let me be alone. Every step I take, they follow me. And I didn't quite get it. Then I realized woman traveling alone, black woman traveling alone. They were protecting me. The the guy from the embassy picks me up. He gives me this place to stay with a woman who lives in Paramaribo, which is the capital. And then he comes the next day and he says, do you want to meet the Jukas? And I said, sure. I'll meet anybody. So we drove four hours up into the bush. And there were these people who looked like they were straight out of Ghana in the 15th century. It was amazing. And they're called again? They're called- the Jukas. And he spoke Juka. 
and he asked, um, he asked, they asked him if I was a civilized Bush Negro because I had very short cropped hair. And I said, well, we can debate the civilized part, but I can tell you. And he tried to explain why I had come, how I had come to be there and coming up out of enslaved people. And it was, I only spent a day there, but I bought the most exquisite furniture. They made remarkable furniture. And these beautiful combs, somebody stole the furniture when I got back to the States. I know who stole it. Probably but, the FBI um, agent. St- no, no. No, right. no right. the FBI did not steal it. All right. Some so, colored people stole it. All right. So I have some of the combs. And... um <laughs> But it was a remarkable experience, and it had it, it gave me what I needed spiritually in that very moment. And Suriname <clears throat> felt like the most welcoming Mississippi I had ever been to. Wow. And it was so- gorgeous. It had these mobs that were, like, huge and just fauna and the food. It was the first time I had experienced a truly multicultural country. I could understand the Dutch, though, because I knew German. But what was what was quirky was to see these black women in brown uniforms speaking Dutch. They were the agents at the airport and that there were women working at the airport. It was like, oh, OK. But the Jukas, they that that was a that was a life changing moment for me to see these people. And they they had on traditional West African clothing. It was just I, I felt like I was in Ghana. Wow. So let's talk a little more about Pan-Africanism, uh, specifically about Marcus Garvey. So it's he is basically credited with really bringing the notion of Pan-Africanism to this country. Jamaican-born, he lived for 52 years. He died in 1940. Um, he called himself a black separatist. He actually, at some point, collaborated with the KKK um, because they had similar goals, actually. And he led the Back to Africa movement. Now, in 1923, Marcus Garvey was convicted in a U.S. federal court Mm -hmm. of mail fraud, and then he was sent to prison. He gets out. In 1927, he was deported to Jamaica, and eventually he leaves Jamaica and he goes to England Uh, in 1935, and eventually dies then in 1940. Now, Marcus Garvey had two wives, both of them named Amy. Amy Jacques. You got to know wife number two. I did. So tell us about that. So the other thing about Marcus Garvey (laughs) is J. Edgar Hoover got W.E.B. Du Bois and A. Philip Randolph to meet with him to plot against Garvey. Yes, and that, that just, when I read about that, it was like, really, W.E.? Really, Ray Randolph? But this is how powerful Marcus Garvey was. So tell us about so his this wife. Is, this is the letter that Marcus Garvey's wife wrote to me, August 9th, 1971, from Jamaica. I have received your order number 2140, Salesman Harrigan, for 10 copies of The Black Man. I have sent you by ship mail, registered 12 copies. It is the January issue, which is the last issue published, so you can send me a dollar when you sell them. 
My son, Marcus, is trying to get out an August issue as the 17th is his dad's birthday. I will send you a copy of that. He does not sell copies by mail as he has no help. I will try to explain briefly what happened to him for publishing this stencil stencil magazine and confronting the neocolonialism of Jamaica. In January, he sold out his furniture, resigned his job, sent his wife Claire to New York City as she has a permanent visa and was pregnant. He remained until the end of that month so that his school could get a replacement for a science master to take charge of all science teachers. A few days before date for him to fly out, he went to his bank and was told to go to the American ambassador for a student's visa so that he could draw his funds at any time directly from the bank. He had paid his fees in advance to the School of Computer Programming, 1971 which cannot be studied here. When he went to the ambassador's office, the ambassador said he wanted to see him. He was escorted upstairs to that office, and in the presence of a man who looked like a CIA agent and another consular office, he was quizzed and talked to by the ambassador for over an hour. He was told to return the next day. At that time, the clerk downstairs took his passport, canceled his visitor's visa, which he had until 19 and refused him a student's visa, which means that he is barred from America. It is a good thing he lived in a house next to mine, and I own it, or he would have... or he would have had nowhere to live, no job, no furniture, and his pregnant wife in America. A fire occurred in her mother's apartment in Brooklyn two weeks after. Her mother fell down the stairs in the darkness and broke her leg. Claire slipped but was not injured, except for exposure as they ran out uh, without coats. Her mother had no insurance on the furniture. After another few weeks, he had to bring Claire back to Jamaica. She delivered a baby boy on the 25th of May, Africa Day. He is strong and healthy. His name is Sekou Menelik Garvey. The ambassador said he had to protect American business interests in the island, and Marcus was an agitator. So he broke him, and he blocked his plans. He goes to the university here to read for his master's in physics, but this is not satisfactory, as the particular line of study he wants cannot be done here for lack of experimental facilities. I have related all of this to let you know what we suffer out here. Did you see the Ebony Magazine article about the Garveys? I would like to sell black history to Dr. Dorman Hodges, Monarch Press, Simon & Schuster. It is done up for students and contains a chapter on Garvey. Best wishes to you. Keep up the fight. We are in the firing line, too. Righteousness must triumph fully in the end. Amy Jacques Garvey. You are listening to the Commonwealth Club of California. Hear thousands of our podcasts on iTunes, Google Play, and Stitcher. And when you're in the Bay Area, please join us live for one of our 500 programs each year. You can find us online at CommonwealthClub.org. Now, back to our program. So, Daphne, I was um, a first-year law student at Stanford when Angela Davis was on trial for kidnapping and the murder of a Marin County Superior Court judge. 
and her trial was held in nearby in San Jose. Venue had been changed. Um, and ironically held in a courtroom, which years later I was to preside in. Um, so I volunteered as a first-year law student to work um, with her defense team. And my assignment, because as a first-year student I didn't know anything, uh, was to organize all of the various newspaper articles that were commenting on the trial from all around the world. There was no Internet then. So that was my job. And, and what I was so happy about was that I was very content to actually be in the room uh, with her incredible defense team as they were putting together their case that resulted in Angela's acquittal by an all-white jury. Uh, you were there, too, uh, working with her defense team. And I'm guessing that our paths crossed, but I, I just don't recall actually seeing or, or meeting you. But uh, what was your role, um, and who, who did you meet with respect to that? Being on the defense team? Well, I was there to work as a secretary. There were two of us who were secretaries for the legal defense team, not the defense committee, but the actual lawyers. Right. To a person, they were brilliant. Margaret Burnham, it was her first trial. Dobby Walker, who was a seasoned litigator from the Communist Party. Margaret was also in the party. Leo Branton, who was masterful. He did that closing argument, and every law student and every judge in every country in the world should watch that closing argument. And Howard Moore, who was a seasoned civil rights attorney, and Howard was the one who hired me. And Howard has always had a very quirky temperament. Howard and I worked seamlessly together. We worked because there was a goal, he was clear, and the other thing that I absolutely respected about Howard, he never called the judge your honor. Excuse me? He never called, he never, judge, he would say in that law, judge, he never called him your honor. He says, because this man has not earned my honor. Interesting. I only went in the courtroom once because getting in the courtroom, that's a whole long story. But that took. Well, I, I remember because yes. at the time I, I had an afro and I remember I couldn't take the pick. And yes. that was considered a weapon. There was all this kind of security. Yes. In yes. So but just one so, thing. So Angela was incarcerated for 16 months and then finally released on bail. Mm -hmm. Right. And you mentioned you talked about that. Uh, but during her incarceration, you corresponded with her, right? Well, not only did I correspond with her, I was also responsible for her personal hygiene items and her stationery. And she and I went into jail one time Here's to take her the items. I, I always had somebody else in. I don't like jail. I'm real clear. <laughs> I, I just don't. But I went that one time, I had knitted her a shawl, I took the shawl, I took the personal hygiene items, and this is a letter. She wrote me a couple of letters in response to some things that she needed and a discussion we had about a project we wanted to work on. And by the way, this jail was the jail in Palo Alto. Yes. Okay. Yes. Dearest Daphne, got your letter the other day. We should try to have that discussion when the time is right. About the paper, what it lacks is a systemic analysis of the place of black women in this country today. That's my next project, a kind of continuation of the 
BS memo. I'm not sure what the BS memo was. Maybe you have some ideas. I've just asked Howard to give you a message, but he insists he'll forget, so he suggested a note. I was wondering whether you have any more of those Tom Feelings cards. I'd like more of them, one with the pretty, very delicately drawn picture of the little girl within, with earrings. Howard will point it out to you. Also, I'm completely out of envelopes. Need a big stack of them. I'm rapidly running out of the other stuff, too. Have been writing letters at the rate of 10 or 15 a day. Those little Japanese cards you send, I really like. When you have time, could you pick out five or six packs of those and small cards like that? Thanks a lot, Daphne. Coming soon and stay for a while. (laughs) Much love, Angela. P.S. Thanks for the Tampax. (laughs) So just just two months, though, before uh, the not guilty verdict in June 1972, you decided to quit working for the defense team. Why and what happened? It got heady. It got so traumatizing. What do you mean? So heady. The death threats. I mean, there would be seven packs, you know, those big canvas packs that the mail used to come in. Seven of those a day filled with letters. Sometimes there would be, um, what do you call the things at the shooting range? Targets. There would be those with bullets shot through them. Or moose, decapitated moose heads with bullets through them. The vileness of the letters. It was just, and the, and the inter, the conflict within the different cadres of the team. The defense committee versus the legal committee. The defense committee thought they knew better than the lawyers and the lawyers had to tell them, oh, wait a minute, you know, we do know a little bit about the law. It got very, very, very heady. So did you quit? No. Howard told me I could not quit. He said, you can't leave me. You cannot do that. And the other secretary said, please don't. But it just the the clamoring of the press. There was press from all over the world. Right. There was press from Germany. There was press from West Africa. There was press from Latin America. Mm-hmm. There was press from the Soviet. What was it? The Soviet bloc. Right. Um, so where were you when the verdict came in? I was waiting outside with a group of people, including Angela's mother. And when the verdict was announced, I fainted. And because I did not think Angela was going to be acquitted. It was not about being negative. It was about all of what I had seen and all of I knew what was on the table and that there were those 12 white people. One was actually a Latino from the Valley. But I was not convinced those people were going to acquit her. And that justice was going to be served. And I just, I passed out. And Angela's mother came over and she said, you're going to be all right. And held me and got me composed. And throughout the trial, she was always, how are you doing? Are you okay? And over the years, when I've run into her, she's always thanked me and said how much she appreciated me doing what I did. And um, you have more than switching gears a little bit. You have more than 150 letters from six men. Flita Drumgo, Louis Talamentes, Johnny Spain, Willie Tate, John Cluchet and Hugo Pinnell. Who are they? And tell us about the letters. 
the San Quentin Six. And these were men who were brought up on charges from everything ranging from stealing a television set and getting life to murder. And all of them were very young when they were incarcerated. And Fleeter corresponded with me the most. But he was always so upbeat in his letters. And I just want to read the salutation of one of the letters. And uh, recently I found another stash. So I may have actually just from Fleeta, I may have a hundred letters. It says, um, Daphne, the beautiful one, you're going to be there going to shine. There wasn't no negativism. The enemy of the sun will be gone. Love, joy, and happiness. Fleeta, I asked chief to get some photos of you and Anya and send them. Okay. Love you. And then after they were released, those men sent me flowers. They bought me a uh, not a, um, a woven uh, shawl from Latin America, and they stayed in touch with me over the course of time. And Fleeta died a couple of years, maybe eight years after he was released. Mm -hmm. But he stayed in touch, and then this whole network of people who were incarcerated, the word was, okay, if you want books, contact Daphne Muse, hmm. because I would get books into prisons and jails. And um, I have a letter where San Quentin, the, the head person in charge at San Quentin, returned my letters because I had written them on posters from Osball which was this Cuban place yeah. that <laughs> that's designed graphics. He said, we cannot accept Take these yeah. Ms. Muse. So I kept those as well. Wow. So I'm going to switch again, go to another area here, Toni Morrison. So Toni Morrison, she's won the Pulitzer Prize, the National Book Award, the Nobel Prize for Literature. She's presented the Presidential Medal of Freedom by President Obama. She's now 88 years old. She's an author held in highest esteem, but you had a problem with her. And no, you, and I didn't have a well, wait, no, no, it wasn't a, minute, a problem with wait her. Wait a minute, Lars. you wrote to her. You wrote something. Well, you wrote to her. Mm -hmm. So why don't you tell us about it? Okay. So we'll Miss Morrison wrote this novel called Tar Baby. That book worked my nerves. And I had to write Miss Morrison and let her know. April twenty second, nineteen eighty one. Miss Tony Too Tough Morrison, editor, Random House. Dear Miss Morrison, to the reading of Sula, I brought the awe of newly discovered treasure. To the reading of Song of Solomon, I brought a precious and titillating anxiety. But to the reading of Tar Baby, I brought a nagging fear, real reluctance, and a sense of disgust with the title. Five days ago, I closed the pages of Tar Baby and felt I had read a brilliantly disturbing and wrenchingly wretched novel. When people ask me if I liked it, I don't say yes or no. I don't think it was designed to be liked for the edges and guts it exposes are much too raw. I encourage people to read it for themselves and form their own basis for their position perspective on what they've read. 
Tar Baby is a lot like the kerosene and sugar your folks would give to you when you had a cold. The stuff often made you vomit, but it was so nasty that cold went away or either your mind willed it away. I guess I'm trying to say this was a hunk of reality so fresh and raw that the blood of it never even dried. It continued to ooze even down to the very last page. But this one also worked me like no novel I've ever read. I felt like I was doing construction work and found I I could never cover more than 30 or so pages at a time. One thing you do, one thing is you do make your reader work at reading your novels. You also did things in this one that were just incredible. And I'm convinced there is now an eighth part of speech. A. Morrison. It's a composite verb with noun aspects and adjective properties. The first part of the novel was convoluted, and it took me a while to sort the storyline and connect with all the characters. But then I realized this was not simply another a novel about Jadine, a Janet Cook in some ways, but it was a series of stories intricately woven yet simply rendered in other ways that opened up the lives of a myriad of people from Son and Jadine to the man and woman who lived on the island. Their names escape me now, but he was the one who had been to the States and he worked with the taxis on the island to the reader. In many ways, you wrote this novel with the same precision that a surgeon would execute an operation, especially one that is cancer-related. I've passed the novel on to someone else and can't recall names the way I would like to. I also feel a bit strange writing to you about the novel, but then there are those of us who want you to know how we respond to what you put forth. I hope you will be in this area in the not-too-distant future and that we will be there will be opportunities for the public to dialogue with you around the novel. We appreciate such. Images of clipped and castrated men and numb and visionless women keep running through my mind. Valerian was such an appropriate choice for the white man's name. He was Jadine's sedative, Nanadine and Sydney's question mark, and he sedated Margaret for such a long time with trinkets and charms that made tinny enough noises to distract her from the real focus in life. I'll never drink Valerian tea again. Jadine, the willful girl and worthless woman, is certainly symptomatic of the meism permeating the society. Dead baby seal skins brought warmth to her life. Why in the hell would you have a coat like that in the tropics or period? What were the three eggs the African woman had? Was that a trinity? There was an obviously erect purity about her. In spite of the fact that I'm still sorting my emotions related to the book, its visual qualities were so outstanding that it read like a film, and there was a kind of clarity about most aspects of it that seemed to make it so easily adaptable to film. But then the translation may destroy it totally. No matter how your work leaves me feeling or whether I agree or disagree with you, I think I will always read what you write for the sheer pleasure of indulging myself in the eighth part of speech. But I also respect your discipline, the manner in which you have molded the craft, but most of all appreciate the fact that you put something on the brain for folks to think about, and in a very, very serious way. Streetwise men and educated women, it is all really about destruction, and are we doomed to remain their servants for, for the duration? This letter is by no means complete, but my own lack of clarity at this juncture prevents me from going on. Do take good care of yourself, continue to enjoy the development of your sons, and there are some souls who manage to maintain despite 
the wretchedness cast upon them. P.S. And then there's the whole question of class. I hope I never, I hope never to be mired in that tar. Daphne, you can write a letter. She can write a letter now. Boy, I was mad with Toni Morrison. So, and did you ever hear from her? She wrote me back. I have not. The letter is on blue stationery. I have not found it yet, but she did write me back. Was she nice? Was she kind? She wrote me back. (laughs) (laughs) All right. Nice and kind. All right. But, you know. She wrote you back. She wrote me back. All right. Um, You also wrote to Oprah on more mm -hmm. than one occasion. Mm -hmm. All right. So So in the 90s, I wrote Oprah Winfrey three letters. I wrote her one. She did a show on race. And I thought she did a very good job, given that it was a major media mm-hmm. kind of presentation. She did a show on domestic violence. At the time, I was on the board of an organization called the Oakland Men's Project. And um, my husband was a member of the project. And they were doing workshops all over the Bay Area and sometimes across the country about domestic violence. She did a show that included a workshop that the men of the Oakland Men's Project conducted. And you can find it on YouTube. That's why I write these letters. This is not fan mail. So wait, wait a minute. G- so you had written to Oprah about the project? Are you saying yes, that? Yes. And then I, she picked up on that and then did a She picked up on She contacted the Oakland Men's Project, and the project blew up. They got 30,000 phone calls and so many requests for this work to be done across the country. Now, this we're talking in the we're talking mid 90s. So the show probably aired in 1993. And we have an image of, I think, the first page of one of that letter. Yes. So it was in 92. Wow. Then I wrote her a letter and I'm not taking I'll, I'll take a little bit of credit for the. Oakland Men's Project thing. Mm -hmm. I think lots of people wrote, well, lots of people did write Oprah letters. Probably Oprah may have 5 million letters that people Mm -hmm. have written her easily. Maybe 10, maybe 50. (laughs) A lot of letters. So I wrote her a letter about Africa. And I said, Miss Winfrey, there's a continent you need to get to know. And I explained why in that letter. Mm -hmm. It was a little bit snarky. But uh, All right. I don't claim to have, I think there were a lot of people who were inspiring her to move forward and do things. So my voice was Again, the mix. importance of letters. Absolutely. Right. So then there's poet laureate Gwendolyn Brooks. Uh, 1950, she became the first African-American to win a Pulitzer. And hers was a Pulitzer for Poetry. Uh, she died in 2000 at the age of 83. You met her first in 1967. So tell us about the meeting at Fisk, your alma mater, and the reception that she received at Fisk. So John O'Killens hosted the Black Writers Conference. He hosted it for two years at Fisk University, 66-67. And I helped work on the conference and a man named Don L. Lee, who's now Haki Mahabudi, was at the conference. Imamu Baraka was, well, he was Leroy then, and then he became Imamu. And um, Don Lee introduced Miss Brooks, but he also 
took her on for not having an afro. And he did it in such a way that was like, in public, dude, you don't, this woman. This was this at wo- Fisk. This, was a, this woman is older than you are. You don't do this. I mean, it was such disrespect. And I was so upset. So Miss Brooks and I talked, and we talked about lots. You were in that moment. You were there. We talked a lot about what was going on, and we stayed in touch. So when I went on to manage Drum and Spear, I invited her to come to Drum and Spear. Did she come? She absolutely came. She did a fabulous reading. Um, And then um, I invited her in 1975 to come and speak at Berkeley. And that was in, um, oh, I just forgot the name of the auditorium, 2,000 people. I invited her in 1996 to come and speak at Berkeley again. We had to turn 700 people away. The fire marshal said, you cannot bring another person in here. If I had had my wits about me, I would have said, oh, they the choir. Can they go up? But I just, I didn't have my wits about me in that moment. Wow. Anyway, so... We have a dinner party. I give a dinner party for Miss Brooks. This is at Berkeley. Yeah, this is at Berkeley. Mm-hmm. Oh, which, by the way, she stayed until after midnight signing books. And it was about 1230. I said, Miss Brooks, I have to go to work tomorrow. She looked at me and she kept signing books. <laughs> okay. So I had had this dinner party for her and I fixed lamb, not knowing that lamb was her favorite dish. She asked me to pack lamb to put on the train with her. So I had already planned to take her to the train. My then three-year-old daughter, granddaughter Malia, was with me. And uh, we took her to the train, and she tells me this story. She says, you know, I spoke at this women's college, and nobody took me to the train. I never asked her the name of the college. And she says, I had planned to donate my papers to that college. Fast forward 2000, Mm -hmm. I get a phone call from the Bancroft saying, uh, we have 20 boxes of Miss Brooks' archives. Um, We have called her and made her an offer. I said, is it already sealed? They said, "Uh, no, we needed to talk to you. I said, hang up the phone, give her the money. It all happened. Like, I think it all happened within two weeks. Gwendolyn Brooks Archives is now at the Bancroft because of home training by my parents. So she fixed her some lamb. Home training. Fixed her some lamb. Home training, young people, that Betty and Fletcher insisted that we have Mm -hmm. from hosting people to feeding people to taking them to the train. Right. And that archive is amazing. There is a letter in there from Leopold Senghor talking about how madly in love he is with Gwendolyn Brooks' poetry, and he thinks she is the cat's meow. Wow. It is a beautiful letter. So tell us about her postcards. So she sent me a series of cards. She sent me one from France, and this was a note that she sent me. March 30th, 1986, she says, Dear Daphne, thank you for the beautiful letter. I shall always treasure it and peek at it if I need a little bolstering. Us, who doesn't? I like visits to be no more than two days long, and usually I pack a reading. 
I pack it with a reading, a workshop, a radio interview, breakfast if necessary, lunch, dinner, reception, newspaper interviews, or conferences with students, autographing galore, galore all into one day. She was massive high energy. Coming back to Washington, great. I have my goodbye lecture at the Coolidge Auditorium. Hope to see you. Sincerely, Gwen Brooks. Yes, by all means, lunch or dinner. And then after she left the Berkeley presentation in 1996, about six months later, she called and left a message on my answering machine, and she says, and dear Daphne, what did you fix for dinner today? <laughs> and I so wish I had kept that recording. Yes. But she was a jewel, just a jewel. In the, and she did a lot of work in prisons. She went and she mm. spent a lot of time reading in prisons, donating books to prisoners. And her tax returns are in her archives. Miss Brooks made $50,000 in 1953. That's a lot. That's a lot of money for a writer, for a black woman writer. I was like I had to look at, Yes. She did she did very well and she gave a lot back in terms of her writing, in terms of her prison reform work. Um, and just in terms of her humanity, I mean, and she was hilarious. <laughs> now, I have to say, the Chicago people ain't pleased that her archive is at Berkeley, but I'm very pleased. Wow. <laughs> wow. <clears throat> wow. Quite a story. Um, uh, do we have any, if you have questions you can or comments, you can always fill them out on the cards because we have a few minutes left. Um, I don't have any at this point. You have some right there, mate. So while you're doing that, I just okay. want to point something out. My dear friend Jennifer wrote me this letter. This is a this is a disc. This is a 45 disc record that she got at the Metropolitan Museum. Now this is friendship. She wrote the letter in the round. Wow. This is. I mean, this is friendship, and. She would do the same thing today. I was just, I was just stunned to get this letter, and and the, it's the the actual disc is red, and parts these little cutouts are green, and I just, I was just amazed by it. So not only is it the content of the letter, but the aesthetics of the written letter. And some of these letters, some of the penmanship is just incredible. So what I did for myself, I used to have a fountain pen collection. And about 10 years ago, I found a pen made by an Italian company called Omas. And they did a series of three pens dedicated to Nelson Mandela. And I collected my coins. It was a lot of coins. And I bought one of the Nelson Mandela pens, and it is gorgeous. And they have a Toni Morrison pen, too. Wow. Yes. I should get an Alice Walker pen. Yes. 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 <laughs> so, so, Daphne, um, in this age of social media, um, letter writing is really on the endangered species list. Um, have letters given way to text messages, Instagram, or our... Letters staging a comeback? 
a little bit of a comeback. After I spoke at the University of Baltimore, there were about 150 people in the audience. 52 students wrote me letters. 52 of them. One of the letters closed by saying, please come back soon. Another wrote, um, because of you, I went out and I bought Sula and I read it. And it changed my life. I mean, there was re- it wasn't just, thank you for coming. I'm glad you came to speak to us. These were letters of substance. And it spoke so much to the professor, Josh Davis. It said so much about him. So now in Baltimore, there is a cafe where you have to come and write a letter in order to be to participate in the environment of the cafe. So I'm hoping that this will be picked up across the country and actually around the world. And people have started writing me letters again. That's terrific. And and I have a lot of Miss Walker. All right. A lot of Miss Walker. We we mixed it up a little bit, didn't we? (laughs) Um, Here's a question. Please tell us about your children's books, the ones that you've written. So... um, The last one that I did was a collection of poetry, um, poems from the Harlem Renaissance. And I really wanted young readers to know about the poetry of that era. Um, And that the last one was in 2006. And the first one I did was a book called Children of Africa. And it was a coloring book that three of us, Jennifer, Cortland Cox and I worked on. And on one side of the page was the narrative for children and on the other side was narrative for parents so what the children the parents and children were learning at the same time and i'm currently working on a children's book on the architect david ajai i'm writing a a young adult um uh children's book on him graphic graphic biography got it um here's a question um, is your daughter a letter writer, and how do we get our young people to write letters? I have letters in the collection from my daughter when she was younger, but she, you know, she's twixing, twexing, whatever, tweeting. You know, uh, tweeting is like hieroglyphics. It really is. You know, things do go in cycles, and tweeting is back to hieroglyphics. How do we get our young people, do you think? I think showing them letters. I think, first of all, they've got to see letters. You don't, you don't know what a letter looks like if you haven't seen it. So they've got to see it. And writing, those of you especially who are grandparents who have a little bit more time on your hands, write your grandchildren. That's a good, very like, good suggestion. Yeah, my, I have a great-grandson now. I call him Mr. Mason. Mr. Mason has his own library, and Mr. Mason has the first letter that his nana sent him. It's terrific. Yeah. Great. So you got it. You, we have to do our part. So we have time for one final question, and it's from our audience. And I'm just trying to make sure I can under, understand this one. Um, so what are you going to do with all of the letters that you have? What is your plan? Well, the plan vacillates. It, it, it's, no, I should say the plan is fluid. Some of the letters are already at Emory. Um, but I am, I'm looking at some of them will be included in a memoir. Um, some of them I would like to go into a social justice curriculum because I think given the historical nature of the letters, that it would be very good 
to use in in curriculum. And I've done a lot of curriculum work, including that project I worked on for Major League Baseball, got into 200,000 schools in the U.S., and in Japan because of Ichiro. So I'm hoping something like that and sharing them with audiences. And, um, you know, and now that I'm beginning to get letters from people again, um, you know, hopefully it'll spur that along because it makes you think more deeply. It makes you, when you write a letter, whether it is out of angst, like that letter I wrote Toni Morrison, or whether it is out of love and compassion, like the love letters I have between my husband and I, or whether it is letters with my brother who was at the Supreme Court and, you know, there was history behind that, or the letters of the movement, the letters of struggle. We really loved each other. Mm -hmm. We really loved each other, you all. That's why we struggled so hard. That was not out of fear and anger. And we loved each other. We wanted to see the greatest dignity and humanity exercised. We wanted this mantle of oppression off our backs, and we wanted it off the backs of others who were oppressed. And those letters reflect that in ways that are just, in some time, in some ways, they are really magical. Wow. So, to writer, social commentator, and all-around amazing woman, Daphne Muse, thank you so much. Thank you. I just really appreciate all of you taking time from your day when you could have been watching Game of Thrones or, you know, whatever else that is y'all watch, to come and share that. It, it means the world to me. It really does. Because every person I meet in the world touches my soul, touches my spirit, gives me something that allows me to give back. And even J. Edgar Hoover gave me something, allowed me to give back. My foot up his ass. <laughs> so, we, Stephanie, we also, we also thank our audiences here and on radio, television, and the Internet. I am Judge Ladaris Cordell, and now this meeting of the Commonwealth Club, the place where you're in the know, is adjourned. Thank you all. Thank <laughs> you.